welcome to the seventh bonus episode of the Cinescope Podcast. I'm your host, Chad Hopkins, and returning to the show after last appearing in episode 33 is Aaron White to talk about the fifth film in the Pirates of the Caribbean series, Dead Men Tell No Tales. Aaron, how are you doing tonight? I am great, Chad. I'm a little warm up here in Seattle. I know that sounds odd, but it's kind of like a heat wave going on, and so it's hot with no air conditioning. But I'm excited to talk about this movie, so I'm going to just push through the heat. Good, good. Good to hear. Um, You know, we sort of put this together sort of last minute because Sarah, who was on the Pirates of the Caribbean Curse of the Black Pearl episode this past week, was supposed to talk about this film with me. She didn't get the chance to see it this weekend, so I'm going to talk about it with her later. But for now, you stepped in and we're going to talk about this movie. And I think we both enjoyed the experience overall, so... Do you want to reintroduce yourself real quick and let everybody know who you are, what you do, all that kind of good stuff? Sure. So, yeah, my name's Aaron. Like Chad said, um, I also host a film podcast called Feelin' Film. That's F-E-E-L-I-N apostrophe F-I-L-M. Kind of a similar take to what Chad does here. Not the same format, but we have the same kind of approach to looking at films where Um, We take a very emotional approach uh, and subjective nature of how we look at movies. We don't talk about a ton of technical aspects of the film or get too in the weeds with that stuff. We like to keep it as a hard issue when we talk about film and it's, it's a blast. Um, And you know, it's just been, it's been great every time I've gotten to talk to you about a film, Chad. And uh, I, you know, I came out of this one shocked that I wanted to talk about it. I was surprised. We don't have an ep- we're not doing an episode on it because we didn't think it was going to be any good. Um so this is a great great opportunity to be able to do that. And so thanks Sarah for not getting to see the film. <laughs> right. You and I had actually already started talking about it a little bit on Facebook and then she ended up not being able to so I said let's continue this conversation. And so here we are. Um, Now, as always with these bonus episodes where we talk about new release movies, we're going to start with a spoiler-free section. Those typically last about 10 minutes, but just be warned that after this section, I'll give the spoiler bell a ring, and then we will start talking about the spoilers in this film. So right now, spoiler-free, let's get started. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, so we are talking about Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tell No Tales. It released just this past weekend on May 26th of 2017. It was directed by Joachim Renning and Espen Sandberg, who, aside from a whole bunch of Norwegian films, I believe, uh, also directed the first two episodes of the Netflix series Marco Polo. It was written by Jeff Nathanson with story help from Terry Rossio, who co-wrote the first four films with Ted Elliott. The music here is by Jeff Zanelli, so it's the first Pirates film to not be officially... No, it's the second Pirates film to not be officially scored by Hans Zimmer, although he was very heavily involved in Curse of the Black Pearl score by Klaus Badelt. Zanelli also composed the scores for Secret Window, the Spielberg series Into the West, Disturbia, Outlander, The Pacific with Blake Neely, The Odd Life of Timothy Green, and he also worked with Zimmer on the previous four Pirates film scores and Rango and The Lone Ranger. This movie stars Johnny Depp, Javier Bardem, Brendan Thwaites, Caius Godelario, Kevin McNally, Stephen Graham, Jeffrey Rush, Martin Kleba, Golshifta, Farahani, David Wenham, and a brief appearance by Mr. Paul McCartney, or Sir Paul McCartney, excuse me. So, Aaron, let's just start off with our thoughts on the previous film. What did you think about On Stranger Tides? Because that, I think, is definitely the most maligned of the uh, Pirates films so far. 
boy, we're just going to get the bad stuff out of the way right up front, huh? Right. <laughs> um, w- well, you know, I recently rewatched all of the films kind of in preparation for uh, this episode and, and for the new movie coming out. Because I wanted to both introduce my kids to the new films, which we got to watch the first movie. I, I watched the first movie with them. But the one that I didn't revisit was On Stranger Tides. And the reason is because it was so convoluted to me. It was just all over the place. There was so much going on. And it was the only reason that my expectations for this one were tempered a little bit. Knowing that we weren't getting Verbinski back to direct kind of made it a little bit nerve-wracking, not knowing what we were going to get. But to answer the question of does this improve on it, immensely. It, it, it absolutely does improve on it. I think that this is a – I don't know that I want to say return to form because that's subjective, and I don't know that it would be a return to form in everybody's opinions. It's not a return to Curse of the Black Pearl form, but it's certainly closer in line to what we got in Pirates 2 and Pirates 3 than, than on Stranger Tides nonsense. Okay, I, I also revisited all the films going into this new film this past weekend. I marathoned, well, of course, I watched the first one for the podcast last week, and then Friday and Saturday I watched the next three. And while I don't hate on Stranger Tides as much as a lot of people do, I I think it's okay. It It's definitely not up to the standard that I think the original trilogy is, but I think they were trying to do something completely different than the first three, and the movie was the worst for it. There's something that was lost in them trying to do something completely different, and we only had three returning characters, and it, it just didn't gel correctly for me. I still have some fun with it. I think Ian McShane is great as Blackbeard. Other than that, I don't love On Stranger Tides, and so I would also agree that this is more or less a return to the more Verbinski-esque storytelling and visuals and stuff from the original trilogy. Uh, Rob Marshall, I guess, just didn't have what it takes to direct a proper Pirates film when it came to On Stranger Tides. And so this was a little bit of a, a return to that for me. Now, it's hard to discuss exactly how it measures without spoiling a whole lot of things. But for me, I think it brought back familiar things that I loved from the original trilogy. And that that helped to make this movie viewing experience almost a little bit of a nostalgia trip. Whereas On Stranger Tides was, again, just something completely different. I didn't have a whole, a whole lot of nostalgia watching that one at all. This one adds, it adds meat to characters we know, and it introduces new characters that because of various connections they have to the original trilogy, I care about them right off the bat. And then I don't lose a care in them because of how they behave and act and react throughout the rest of the film. I I am attached to them from the start and I love watching them grow throughout the course of the movie. Oh, I wholeheartedly agree with that. I I think that they do a great job with maintaining the feel of similar characters that we're familiar with from the original trilogy without being direct copies. Of, of those characters. So they're clearly replacements in a lot of ways. And yet there are new personality traits that keep them fresh and interesting and, and give us something to, to learn about. And like you said, I also love that very early in the film, we really learn about their backstories enough to give us the aha moment where, Oh, okay. Now we we're, 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 we're locked into these characters more because we do, we care about them because of, who they are right now as far as the film by itself do you think it 
stands enough on its own that it's not relying on the previous films as a crutch. Obviously, there there are continued story threads from the, the original trilogy especially, but I don't personally think that the previous films are required viewing for this one to be an enjoyable experience. What do you think? Um, I don't, and and I, I would use my kids as a evidence of that. So they did see Curse of the Black Pearl on Friday night before we watched this on a Saturday night. So they had a little bit of an understanding, but they didn't have near the investment in the overall storyline. Um, and this one, they cared about the characters in this film. They cared about Karina and Henry. They cared about Jack because of who Jack was in this movie. And so I, I definitely do think that it stands alone. Um, I think they do a pretty decent job, honestly, of catching you up in within the narrative of the film. I don't feel like the movie really leaves a bunch of threads hanging where you're not going to know what they're talking about unless you've seen past films. They do, they do a little bit of exposition to make sure that you understand what's going on. And, you know, it's not the best thing in the world that we have to do that. But frankly, when you've got, you're on movie number five and there's a tons of different subplots that have been taking place in this series, you need some of that to be able to, make it that standalone movie experience. And I, I think they do a, a good job of that. I sort of thought of it as, you know, one of the good Marvel movies where you can go into Doctor Strange without having seen any of the other Marvel films and it, it be an enjoyable experience. For that matter, you could go into Guardians of the Galaxy 2, I think, without having seen the first one. And yeah, you might miss a couple things here and there, but you're still going to enjoy the film. So in this case, especially, I think, Seeing the previous films was more of a bonus rather than a requirement. Yeah, that's that's a fair way to look at it. I would agree. Now, to sort of sum up our spoiler-free section, would you recommend people see this in the theaters? Oh, absolutely would recommend that. Just the sound alone for me is worth the theater experience, which may sound weird. Most people may be like, oh, no, you know, it's, it's all about the visuals. Well, the visuals are great, and they're definitely worthy of a big screen, but I loved the sound in this movie and the way that it works in concert with seeing some of the visuals, the spectacularness of what we get to see in this movie on screen. I don't think that it wouldn't have nearly the same effect as it does as seeing it on a big screen for the first time. I think that especially if you're already a pirates fan, then you're going to enjoy this movie and it's worth seeing in the theater. I think maybe if you're not, maybe you may not be so much a fan of this movie, but again, it improves on On Stranger Tides, definitely. So I'd say give it a chance at the very least. And the only caveat I would give is, I don't know what sort of theater you saw it in, Aaron, but my theater, I mentioned this to you earlier, I don't know if it was something off of the projection or maybe it was just the film itself, but there were a couple of the the nighttime scenes where it was literally so dark that I was having trouble making out things on the screen. And I oh, think wow. that, that might have been a projector issue, especially it was especially noticeable right at the start of the film. But if you can see it like on an IMAX screen, which typically has a little bit brighter of a projection, I would recommend that if possible. Yes, it's a little bit more expensive, but I think the IMAX screen usually is worth a ticket price for me. So I would recommend that. Yeah, I would say yes if you're a Pirates fan. If you're if you're going into this movie and you're lukewarm on the series or you're like, oh, another Pirates movie, I guess I'll go see that just because. But, you know, the other ones are just okay. Mm, you know, 
maybe you don't have to go spend your money on this with all of the movies that are coming out. But if you really enjoyed the other films, like Chad said, if you call yourself a Pirates fan, then yeah, I would I would say this is worth seeing it the best way you can see it. Excellent. So that's the end of our spoiler-free section. We are now ringing the spoiler bell, as it were, and everything we're going to talk about from now on is fair game spoilers. So if you haven't watched yet, if you don't want to be spoiled, I would step away. I would also recommend that if you're planning on seeing the movie, definitely step away because there are some cool twists that you don't want ruined for yourself seeing it for the first time. So... Let's just start. We, we already talked about this a little bit. Just to sum up, what are your thoughts on the previous films specifically? Like step by step without <laughs> rambling for too long, I'll have to keep myself to the same limitation. What are your thoughts on the four previous films? I love number one, rewatching it with my kids and introducing them to it for the first time. They are um, 14 and 12, by the way, just for some age reference. It was a blast, just an absolute blast. Number one captured, it created the pirate's feel. And I think it's obviously what we're going to measure every film up to since then. But it's got such a great balance of action, comedy, wit, fantasy, supernatural stuff. The one thing that I think this film did is kind of go back to that minimalisticness when it comes to fantasy elements and supernatural dealings. The series had tended to progress on that. So, you know, two ramps it up a little bit with the Davy Jones stuff. And I really enjoy two as well. I would say number one is my favorite. Number two is slightly below it. Number three, I actually like most of number three. I feel it's a little bit overlong. And, you know, generally in the action sequences, which is weird because they're filmed really well in number three. The, the choreography is is quite good but they just seem to drag forever. It's got like a two hour and 40 minute runtime and you just, you can really feel it, but there's a ton of emotion as well in the final 30 minutes or so of at world's end that packs a huge gut punch. And so it makes it really worth it. And then on stranger ties, as I mentioned, not a super fan. I I agree with you. It's okay. I don't mind rewatching it. But it's not something that I would rewatch. I would probably only rewatch it if I was intentionally trying to rewatch the series. Right. And that's basically what I did. Yeah. I wouldn't single that particular film out on the shelf and say, hey, I'm going to watch this one today. Exactly. So for me, it goes one, two, and then this one and three are almost dead even, and then four. Okay, I think that's fair. So for me, just a little bit of background. I don't need to go over my story on uh, the first film because we had that episode last week. But I love the first film, saw it with my family when I was 12 years old or however old I was at the time. And it's always been a favorite. In high school, my high school mascot was the pirate. And so I had a sort of special (laughs) connection to these films beyond just enjoying them. It was, hey, I'm a pirate. They're pirates. This is really cool. I had a a copy of the Spanish doubloons, the Aztec gold from the first film that I'd wear under my marching band uniform. And I have a, a copy of the double key that goes into Davy Jones chest. And I used that on my keychain for a long time. And I also have a four film box set that, that is shaped like the dead man's chest of Davy Jones chest that his heart is in. And it's the coolest box set ever. And that's how I watched all these films this past week. And so I love the first one. I, I, 
didn't realize really until this past weekend how much I love the second and third films. I love the complexity, the character relationships, especially Will and Elizabeth, and even like Elizabeth and her father, I think, got to me a lot more this past time, uh, this past viewing than I expected it to. The, The scene in the third film where she realizes that her father has died when she sees him in Davy's Jones, Davy Jones locker, that that part gets to me. And it's because I, I care about that relationship and I understand the hurt that she's going through. So the second and third ones, very complex, very emotional in ways I didn't really expect. And so watching it this past weekend, I just realized how much I really care about these characters. And then fourth one already went over that. And so the reason I liked five so much is because surprise, it brings back all these familiar elements. We get Will and Elizabeth. That is so cool. We get, we get the black pearl back. We get Marty, who is, uh, the, the short guy from the original trilogy. We get Malroy and Murtaugh, who are the British officers from the first film who turn into pirates by the end of the I third. I love those guys. <laughs> yeah, me too. I love it. Those guys are just one of my favorite parts of the whole series. Right. And so all these familiar elements from the original trilogy that I love so much are back and present in this one. And that is what really drew me in from the start. The very first scene in the film is 12 year old Henry trying to get in contact with his father and probably try and spend a life with him. But hey, he's still cursed. He's still burying souls lost at sea and he has to turn him away. That That's an amazing scene, by the way, to start the film off with, because they play on your air on your expectations in that scene because you don't know what he's doing. All you do is you see him preparing and he paddles out in this little boat. And then the moment he ties the rope around his leg, I'm like, what is going on? Because so many of these films have started off with like hangings and the gallows. I'm like, is this kid going to kill himself? Like, is it because we don't know. Right. And he, he takes this thing and throws it over the side and, off he goes down to the, the bottom of the ocean. And I, I was I was concerned for a minute. Like, like what am I seeing? What is going on here? And then the, when you see him hit the deck and it kind of clicks in your head and you go, oh, and you realize what he's doing, it's just that. I think it's it's a great way to start the movie because when that Dutchman comes flying out of the water, man, it is, it's your your jaw drops and you're you're in. You're back in the world, the supernatural elements of it. And, and you're just completely hooked again, I think. Exactly. And so all that being said, the first three films and my love for them specifically had me optimistic for this one because unfortunately I did know that Will Turner would make an appearance of some sort. I did know that Elizabeth would make an appearance of some sort in this film. Thank you trailers, I guess. Um, so I'd only seen one or two trailers. I wish that those specific details hadn't been spoiled in those trailers. But, you know, my experience wasn't necessarily worse for it. I I still really enjoyed those connections and seeing those familiar characters. But those characters weren't overused. They weren't over prominent in the film. They were bookends. And it just helped to reintroduce new characters who had those connections to the ones we were already familiar with. And that's one of the film's huge strengths, I think. Now, just talking more about the story. So do these tie-ins like Henry being Will's son or Karina being Barbosa's daughter. That's another surprise twist. Do these tie-ins work well enough for you? Do Does it fit into the universe, or does it feel shoehorned? I do think that it works well. I will be honest and say that I, I didn't necessarily love the Henry and Will storyline as much. I did, I did like it, 
but it didn't grab me on an emotional level as much as when we found out that Karina was Barbosa's daughter. That one certainly did affect me in a big way. And I think that's probably because it didn't feel repetitive. So there's, there's an, I mean, there's an element of Henry looking for Will that is, you know, okay, Will spent his time looking for Bootstrap Bill, his dad. And it's, so it's kind of a, a repetition of that theme, even though it's, it's different. But with her, it was a new thing. It was not something that was carried for, forward from another film. It was a new thread that we were getting to explore. We had no idea. And we knew nothing about Barbosa. I mean, he is a phenomenal character. Looking back and going through these movies again, you realize how amazing he is. And so getting this backstory on him and some depth and, and having something that he actually cares about. And, and that was, I think that's always been kind of the, the question for going about Jack and about Barbosa and some of these pirates is what do they care about other than themselves and the black Pearl? And we get to kind of find that out about him. And then we get to find out some things about Jack too, which I really, really enjoyed. So I think that the tie-ins character wise worked fantastically Except I do not have any idea why the witch was in this movie, not Karina, the other witch. Right, the actual witch, supposedly. Felt so out of place and shoehorned in and just like, a, I, don't, I don't know. I just, I didn't like that. You could have, you could have chopped that and edited it out and I don't think that the story would have lost anything. And then the whole ship in a bottle thing, kind of the playing around with that until they finally got the pearl back into the water and it was the pearl again. I was glad to see that end, frankly. I, th- I think that's one of the things I love about the way that this story was done is it did reset some of that supernatural element. The story had gotten a little off the rails <laughs> once we got to, you know, we're going into the realm of the dead and all kinds of like off the side of the world and just all kinds of crazy stuff is happening. And so when we wipe out all the curses, it gets us back to some a place where I think they can focus on more human stories and use the supernatural element as an ever-present enhancement which is what they did in curse of the black pearl and that's why it worked so well because it wasn't the focus i I don't think so that's that's my take on the time tie-ins is just those couple of little things and and you know the ship in the bottle and the witch stuff that they were so small such small portions of this film that it, it didn't hinder my experience at all right really the only purpose i think of the witch was to establish that something's wrong with Jack and the reason something's wrong with Jack and the reason his luck has gone sour and the reason they emphasize that his luck has gone sour is because this witch has cursed Barbosa's enemies. And I'm assuming that Jack is one of those people. And that's that's part of why finding the trident and breaking the curse is so important because, hey, it's going to get Jack's mojo back. Okay, I'm glad you said that because the one thing I did not understand about this, I missed it. I must have missed that. I didn't know why at the end we were Jack's Jack was having the curse curse list lifted off of him. Like I didn't understand why he was cursed, like why he was involved in the whole lifting of the curse element. So that makes sense now. Yeah. It's just this really brief scene between Barbosa and the real witch. And he says something to the effect of, Oh, you had, you had my uh, enemies cursed or <laughs> that was the worst Barbosa impression I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> but but that's that's what he does is he, he had his 
enemies cursed so he could be prosperous. And we see him. I mean, he's got a golden peg leg now. His ship is fully outfitted. And he's a boss. Yeah, yeah he, he's the boss. He's got his whole fleet and things are going well for him. Finally, he's not dead anymore. He's <laughs> he's not working for the, the British Navy anymore. He is a pirate and he is living large and it is going extremely well for him. And it's because presumably this witch has cursed his enemies so that he could be more prosperous. And Jack, I think, probably falls under the, the category of Barbosa's enemy. So that's the only purpose I think the witch has. She she doesn't really do much aside from that. You're right. And the actress's name is Golshifta Farahani. Haven't seen her in anything else. She's fine in the role, but it's nothing really memorable. And I think that's probably the writing in this case. Now, you mentioned the, the sort of return to form as far as the, the, the supernatural elements go. And I think I, I completely agree. I really love the ghost pirates thing. It reminds me a lot of the zombie pirates from Curse of the Black Pearl. And the visuals are so cool. This concept of these people who have perished in the sea and you have Salazar's hair looking permanently underwater and drifting this way and that way. And you have all these people with missing body parts and they're just floating in the air. I think that is so cool and visually very well done. And it feels like curse of the black pearl that reveal is just like the reveal when barbosa tells elizabeth we're cursed men and she exits and hey zombie pirates everywhere and i i really enjoyed that sort of return to ghost pirates and the the, the ghost ship it, that concept is really cool how it sort of rears itself out of the water and swallows its prey and then the ghost sharks are just pretty cool too oh the ship design is incredible i i i really enjoy the ship design and how it opened up from the bow and came crashing down um, to clamp down on the other ship. I mean, it, it gives you the sense that Salazar truly is an unstoppable force. Because, you know, it's one thing to, to say, oh, there's one random ship out there with some undead floating around taking out the rest of the fleet. But, you know, you would think, oh, you know, you could get enough ships together and probably go 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 fight them off but then you realize when you see what that ship can do that that there's nothing you can do against that right what can you do against a ghost <laughs> right yeah and this isn't the bash on stranger tides podcast but again in on stranger tides the the extent of the supernatural we got was voodoo mermaids and healing water that was basically it. And so it was sort of lackluster in the supernatural department. And I, I agree. I don't want it to be over the top supernatural, but having this simple ghost story, basically, and this idea of a rod that contains all of the curses of the ocean, I think that's a really cool concept. And I think it was executed pretty well. Now, emotionally, I think this film almost reaches those same levels in the second two films in Dead Man's Chest and At World's End. Will and Elizabeth relationship is hard to beat for me, but establishing Henry and Karina as sort of the Will Elizabeth equivalents, I, I believed their growth over the film together, but then also the emotional payoff by the end when Henry has succeeded, he, they have destroyed Poseidon's trident and he goes and is reunited with his father. I, all of his efforts have been fruitful. And he's reunited with his father. And then, lo and behold, Elizabeth comes over the, the hill. And that moment for me was just like, yes, these are the people I care about in this franchise. And I'm so glad they're at least back for a moment. Now, the twist with Barbosa and Karina where, hey, she's his daughter, 
it gives you a reason to care about Barbosa aside from the fact that he's just a cool pirate. And I've heard some criticisms from friends that maybe they didn't believe or didn't care that he had a daughter. But for me, it brought Barbosa on this complete arc. Um, just talking a little bit about his character, you know, in the first film, he is a cursed man yearning for a normal human life. And that's his story there. In the second and third films, he's a reluctant ally to Jack Sparrow and the other pirates because their freedom is at stake. And that's not okay with him. In the fourth film, he's basically just seeking revenge on Blackbeard for taking his leg and for destroying his ship or taking his ship and putting it in a bottle, basically. And now this film, rather than being any sort of antagonist, he actually becomes protagonist for once. And he's able to show that he's more than just this bloodthirsty pirate interested in only himself. He shows he has a caring side. He's an old man who is looking at his daughter that he didn't know he really even had or who he didn't expect to bump into at this point in his life. And he's wishing that he could be a better man. And he has that opportunity. And the moment when he sacrifices himself at the end, taking down Salazar so that Jack and his daughter and Henry can escape is, I think, a great way to end Barbosa as a character. I would agree completely with all of that. And my one wish is that we would get it would be a little bit more of a prolonged emotional scene when he sacrifices himself. It happens so quick that it's almost like, bam, and it's it's over and done. And I think I would have liked them to have a little more time together to seal that, to kind of have a moment or two where they can really talk about their, their lives without... I, I felt like the sacrifice just happened so fast after she found out. Does that make sense at all? It does. I, I, I think I agree with you. The line that he gives right before he dies, uh, where she asks him, who am I to you? And he says, treasure. Yeah, no, that's phenomenal. And then he sacrifices. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. But I think if he had maybe been gravely injured or something and had been able to ascend to the Pearl with them and then them have parting moments together, maybe would that have resolved it a little bit more for you or... Maybe I think I just think I would have liked, you know, anytime anytime a character learns or discovers these things in the midst of an action scene, there's a loss of emotion because it's happening so fast. It's not it, it was still good and it was still powerful and it was still a very much uh, impactful scene. I just I would have liked I don't feel like she got any time with him. You know, I would have liked to her to learn it earlier, I guess. That makes sense have learned it and had a few minutes where she had just learned it. And then they get interrupted by having to go do the thing with the trident. And then she already knows. And now she cares about him because she's, she's conflicted and she's trying to figure this out while they're in the midst of trying to deal with the trident. And then he sacrifices himself. Right. I, th I think that would have worked. Something that sort of just occurred to me is if they'd maybe just had like a, a walking conversation, which might be a little bit cliche, but her not really know just yet but get a glimpse at his more tender side because at throughout most of the film he's just a sort of grumpy old pirate to her but maybe having a moment to see his tenderness and to maybe consider him beyond just being a pirate and then later have that same reveal i think just building that relationship and letting her see ahead of time that he could be this tender person and oh wow and he's my father i think that would have been cool too so i think either way if we had just spent a little bit more time with those characters the payoff would have been better but as it was i think 
that might be a scene in the future when I rewatch this movie that's going to make me tear up just because knowing that payoff, it, it really worked for me in most ways. Now, since we're talking about characters, I want to go ahead and talk about my main criticism of the film and get it out of the way because most of my stuff is pretty positive. And my main criticism is unfortunately Jack Sparrow in this movie. Johnny Depp, I like Johnny Depp. I haven't gotten sick of him as Jack Sparrow before, and I'm not sick of him in this film. But in this film, he was sort of obnoxious to me. He was annoying (laughs) and more obnoxious than when he's like 15 versions of himself. Yes, actually. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) Um, And the reason was, and they framed it this way, so I'm not angry at it for this, but He's framed as down on his luck. Things aren't going well for him. Uh, we see him attempt a bank heist at the start of the film, which is a fun scene. We get a couple of goofy moments out of that, but it's unsuccessful. And his crew abandons him because of it. And basically the whole rest of the movie, he's just this drunken, like a drunken Jack Sparrow. In the previous films, he's acted drunken before, but this time it's like he's actually drunk. He's slurring his speech. I actually found him difficult to understand at some moments in the movie. And by the end of the film, we don't really have any moment for him to be Captain Jack Sparrow and improvising himself out of a tough situation like he's done in the previous films, especially in Curse of the Black Pearl when he's uh, escaping from the British Navy in Port Royal and he's hitting ropes and levers and switches and flying across the masthead and all this kind of stuff that he does in the previous films. We don't really get a moment like that in this one. Now, what I loved was getting a bit of backstory to Jack, and I know you love that too, so... How about you talk about Jack's backstory in this movie? Yeah, I it was one of my favorite things about the film and and definitely one of if not my favorite character moments uh in the whole movie is that brief section where we are learning about Salazar's backstory and what had happened how how it all went down, why he was after Jack, why he considered Jack a nemesis and Everything about that sequence was just phenomenal to me. Now, back background, Chad, I uh, was a Navy sailor for 15 and a half years. So I have been on a ship multiple times. I've, I've been on deployments. I've done this. So the scene in which Jack uses the anchor to swing himself around a rock and then send Salazar past him into the Devil's Triangle, it was one of my favorite moments in the entire movie because, first of all, the the idea that that would work is crazy, but it could, <laughs> it could, but it would be so hard to pull off. And so the fact that Jack has now kind of been forced in this situation to take over and he's just trying to get everybody out of this, this situation and save them at this moment, and, including himself. And then you get that quick shot of him walking across the deck, looking at Salazar. And I don't know what he was swinging at the time was the compass. But it there's might have been the compass, I think. There's something he's swinging in his hand, and he just looks to the to his left to where Salazar is, and ha- I mean, it's oh man, you could feel the anger and the the shock in Salazar in that moment, and the look on on Sparrow is wonderful. But what I really love is when all of this amazing sequence ends, the crew comes up to Jack, and they call him captain, and then they start giving him things, and the first thing that's laid down is one of the little trinkets that's in his hair and that he carries around on his body all the time, right? He, he's the sash is one of them. His hat is one of them. There's a couple, like one of the bra- things that's in his braids, like the bead type thing. And I think the other one's kind of like a tooth. All of those things are part of his appearance ever since we've met him. And 
it really sealed his character for me because it it told me that I've always wondered what Jack cared about, <laughs> like other than himself. And I think he had in that moment, it really nailed down his responsibility to a crew. And and it, it reminded me because it, that's come up multiple times in the film before, but it, it, I don't know, it brought it to the surface for me because you see how, how much their respect means to him. The fact that he's worn these things around forever, he treasures those things. And so anytime he's left without a crew, we see him kind of get down. And now I think we understand more about why, because the praise and the, the, the crew giving him themselves to let him lead them is what makes him feel worthy and gives him value. Yeah, that scene was the closest we got to a quote Jack Sparrow moment. And I did love that scene. I think the the idea of Jack Sparrow running the ship, which actually is the Black Pearl before it was the Black Pearl. It, it does a really careful shot of the, the back where you can see the name of the ship. I can't remember the specific oh. name, but if you read a little bit of the backstory of Jack Sparrow and his deal with Davy Jones, that ship becomes the Black Pearl. So I think that's really cool. But the idea of him sailing into the Devil's Triangle and looping around the rock and turning it back. It's it's one of those Jack Sparrow moments where it's something that is so crazy that you have to be crazy to think about it, but it's also crazy enough that it just might work, and it does, and that that's a Jack Sparrow moment. What I had wished happened, though, with present-day Jack Sparrow was that at, by the end of the film, when they have broken the trident and his curse has been lifted, the curse that Barbosa and the witch supposedly put on him to, to take away his luck, I wish he had just had one moment where he could be Captain Jack Sparrow again. Now, I guess the way they were framing it is his moment is, hey, he's actually the captain of the Black Pearl at the end of the movie. Like, he's finally got a crew, he's on the Black Pearl, and he's ending the film on the Black Pearl, not watching Barbosa sail it away. So maybe that's sort of what they were going for, and they're setting up a new adventure for him to be actually Captain Jack Sparrow for real this time. In which case, I like that, but I just wish there had been one small moment where he could be super awesome Jack Sparrow in present day. And that's my biggest criticism of the film. The rest of it, I think, is fine. And, you know, I had actually shown you a quote from the director uh, the other day about how they didn't want Jack Sparrow to necessarily be the main character this time around. Uh, Sort of like in the first film, especially, Jack wasn't the main character. Will and Elizabeth were the main characters. And the director, Joaquin Roning, said that it was important to go back to the same dynamic that the first film had where Jack is not the main character. He wanted a story about real people, real characters, and then Jack Sparrow comes in and crashes the party every now and then. And they they pull that off, I think. Now, I wish Jack had been just a little bit less obnoxious here and there, but hey, he's not the main character. He's not the focus of the film. And so I appreciated that approach, a sort of return to form in that that aspect compared to Curse of the Black Pearl. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, mean, I got a couple things on character, but before that, I just want to mention these two things that I really love as well. One is just the coming, the way that is that the the island of stars is designed. Um, visually, I think it is incredibly striking. It was really neat to see that because when we first see it, it looks like a reflection in the ocean, and then we realize that it's the actual island, and it's got all of these gemstones on it. I just thought that was incredibly clever and unique. And that was something that that was really, really well done. I also loved the MacGuffin of the Trident. So the fact that 
they're all searching for this trident because they want the power to remove the curse and and it's always an and and be in control of the seas, right? But when we get to the trident, we learn, oh, oops, guess what? It's not an and, it's an or. You can either have power and be cursed, or you can remove the curse, but guess what? You don't get any power. And I thought that that was awesome. I was not expecting that. Threw me for a loop. And you couple that with, dude, so I recently watched this movie called Exodus Gods and Kings. Have you seen it? I have not, but I'm familiar with it. Okay, it's Ridley Scott's retelling of the book of Exodus in the Bible. And it's not a spoiler. I'm sure everyone in the world knows pretty much that in the Bible, Moses parts the Red Sea. So when watching that film, the thing that you're waiting for, because it happens at the very end, is the parting of the Red Sea, because you're expecting, this is a big budget movie, right? I want visually this to be awesome. Well, it's nothing in that film. This movie gave me (laughs) the parting of the Red Sea that I wish that the Exodus movie had given me. The way it looks in this film is awesome. And then with the pearl, like hanging on the edge, driving right down or sailing right down the the edge of the water, uh, water wall, it's, you know, dragging the anchor by the side. I, I loved that visually. I thought those things were all just stellar. Yeah, I think that that sequence, the Island of Stars, all the there's a lot of things in this movie that feel like Verbinski, which is a great compliment because on Stranger Tides at no point feels like Verbinski. Um, so I like that we get a little bit of that that crazy notion, the, the, these extreme visuals and these insane set pieces. I think it, it, it's awesome to go back to that kind of action in this film. Like in At World's End, you have a pirate ship duel in the middle of a maelstrom. <laughs> and that is awesome. It, it, yeah. And it's insane. And here we have the parting of the sea with a ship sailing down the side of it, dragging its anchor, rescuing the people inside the rift. And again, that's insane, but it's awesome. So it feels great returning to that kind of style for the Pirates universe. Now, to just talk about Henry a little bit more. Oh, good. (laughs) You know, he's clearly the Will of this film. Hey, he's Will's son. But he's not a clone of Will, nor is Karina a clone of Elizabeth. They are fulfilling sort of the same purpose in a way. They are the the strong male character, the strong female character of this film. But in no way do they feel like they're clones of their counterparts in the original trilogy. Henry in this film is, he's almost more prepared than Will was. Will was good at being a blacksmith and at sword fighting. And that was pretty much it. Henry has prepared most of his life to try and save his father from this curse of being Davy Jones. And so he has studied all these curses of the sea and has found this idea of the trident of Poseidon at an early age. In fact, I think he mentions it at the start of the film when he's a 12-year-old trying to rescue his father. So he dedicates his life to preparing to eventually save his father Will is just sort of living his life in Port Royal, trying to distance himself from the idea or notion of piracy in any way. So he he's setting out on this adventure, and he's smart, he's he's well-studied, and what he does get from his father is this sort of naivety, which I love, because he, he expects to find Jack Sparrow and to go off on this grand adventure and it to be sort of almost a cakewalk the way he tells it, and 
it doesn't go like that at all. He finds Jack Sparrow, they get on the ship, and him and Karina are tied to the mast because you're you're not real pirates and we're pirates and we're going to treat you unpredictably because that's what we do. And so he has a little bit of that naivety from his father. But again, it's it's not a clone. You make a good point. Um, I felt much more clonish to me. Um, my takeaway was that he was pretty similar in function. And, and I, I get and I agree that his personality is a bit different. And I, I think maybe the script doesn't necessarily do him a ton of favors in some of the scenes. We repeat saving someone from the gallows and, and, and these, these things that we've seen already in the films. And we, so, so we have, you know, Henry participant in that, uh, where, you know, Jack is about to be hung or not hung. Sorry. (laughs) He's about to have his head chopped off. And so I feel like he's will in that moment at least, but I also don't think that his drive for romance with Karina is as strong as Will's was with Elizabeth in the very beginning. Slower burn, which is good and and fine. But I, you know, I will just say this. I wasn't blown away by him. I adore and love Karina's character. And I think that she is new and fresh and exciting. And the fact that she is an astronomer and a horologist. (laughs) (laughs) I laughed out loud every time they said it. My daughter looked at me and rolled her eyes because she's 14. Um, But (laughs) You know, I I thought her character was fantastic and way different than Elizabeth. Both very strong women, but Elizabeth kind of had to come into that. Karina is that right off the bat. And like we talked about, she feels like her father's daughter, even though they've kind of never met, like that natural type of connection. So I liked her more than Henry, didn't love Henry. The, the other one, though, is Salazar. We, we got to mention Javier Bardem, right? He's like second build in this film. Outside of the design of the pirates, I got to say I was disappointed with Salazar. I like the idea of what he is, but with the performance itself, I I don't know. Something was just not there for me. I didn't love it. I, I wasn't blown away by him in the same way that I was by Barbosa as a ghost pirate in Curse of Black Pearl. Did you Did you like him? I liked him. I would agree that he's not probably even close to my favorite part of the film. I think he does give a strong performance. I think he's appropriately scary. The the ghost pirates, especially Salazar, I think are scary. But I also just like Javier Bardem. And I know you do too. But you, you gave me an interesting question to ponder <laughs> good. about good guys versus bad guys. So how about you you frame that real quick? Yeah, so this has to do with Salazar, and this is just something that when I was thinking about the film after leaving it, it kind of dawned on me that what we see here in Salazar's backstory is that Salazar was a, a member of the Spanish fleet, right? He was out hunting pirates. His job was to take take the pirates out of the sea to make it safe, and his entire mission is based on that. It's on taking out pirates. And I realized that in this series, it seems like we really romanticize the pirate and the pirate lifestyle. There's multiple times where Jack or Will or Elizabeth are facing the gallows, facing, you know, the guillotine. There's the scene at the beginning of At World's End that is awful and tragic where they hang a whole bunch of pirates or pirate supporters, (laughs) including a kid. And I, I was realizing, I was thinking about, you know, hey, to some extent, these guys are these are criminals like who have earned what they're getting. And yet we're rooting for them instead of what should be the good guy in Salazar. Salazar 
should be the good guy. He's the police of the sea, but yet the film makes him out to be the villain. And I just thought that was a, a very intriguing and interesting thing about this series. And you disagreed with me. So I'm anxious to hear, or not necessarily disagreed with me, but I'm anxious to hear why you think that we're, it's okay to romanticize the criminal nature of the pirate. Well, I think that, yes, Salazar is a good guy in his original mission, but his downfall is his pride. He has taken out all the pirates except for one. He thinks he's taken out all the pirates, and he he's not exactly braggadocious, but it's just he is immensely proud of this immense feat that I have accomplished. And going back to the original trilogy of Cutler Beckett, who again, is sort of the good guy in mission. He's trying to take out the pirates, but he starts killing civilians in order to draw out the pirate council and kill them. So though his end goal was heroic, or at least it was a a good mission, the means to the end was wrong. And Salazar doesn't do anything quite that evil, but it sets him up as a prideful man and he is seeking revenge for having his pride sort of scorned by Jack Sparrow and for being snubbed by Jack Sparrow. And something we talked about in the Curse of the Black Pearl episode was what piracy means to different pirates. In the first film, Barbosa is a pirate for the, the plundering of it all and for the the killing and the 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 pillaging and the the gold and all that kind of stuff. Jack says from the very beginning, you know, the Black Pearl is about freedom. It's about mm. going where I want to go. And even at the end of that first film, I, I have that quote written down here somewhere where Governor Swan says, perhaps on the rare occasion, pursuing the right course demands an act of piracy. The piracy itself can be the right course. Yeah. And so I think what these films struggle with, yes, pirates themselves are not necessarily good people. But in the first film, Jack stresses, hey, your father was a pirate, but he was a good man. And Jack is talking about the freedom of piracy, not necessarily the freedom to go kill people and rape and steal and all that kind of stuff, just the freedom of being on a boat in the open sea. So you have that contrast of characters like that with characters like Barbosa. And though Barbosa has come around by the end of this film, through the other films, he was the antagonist basically the whole time. He was a reluctant ally to Jack to take down the East India Trading Company. And so that that's sort of my argument is that, yes, pirates in themselves are not good people but different pirates have different motivations and it's the motivation behind the piracy that is important and salazar specifically his downfall was his pride interesting yeah i I think that that makes a lot of sense i really do and and it's not something that hinders my viewing of the film it's just one of those i guess this would fall later or whatever we can do it early into themes for me is this idea And and it comes up for me in multiple different genres take for instance a uh, any kind of like let's say a fast and the furious right where you may be doing something that is what we would consider right for those characters but it's against the law and in the act of doing these things they end up killing cops or military this happens in lots of films and i always i always think about this because i'm like well these cops are after you because you're doing something illegal just because you are justifying it you're now killing someone who's just doing their job to protect, you know, to, to, they're, they're innocent. You're killing an innocent person, but the movies never frame it like that. And so there's some of that in this, this film series. And it was just really intriguing for me, but I agree. 
uh, overall, I definitely agree. I mean, it, it, the pirates whole thing is freedom. You, you nailed it. That's, that's the main theme of what the pirates in this film are all about, you know, including will and Elizabeth is the power to, to go where they want to go. And the British want to control the seas and so does Salazar. Right. And even in this film, something I just thought of Salazar, he takes out all the pirates without discretion. It's just no mercy. Why should we show the mercy? They are pirates. And there's there's no discretion there. There's no seeking motivation or trying to find out maybe somebody on the ship was dragged into the life. And he he's ruthless, I guess you could say. And that's not always a good thing, even though his purpose is to take down pirates. There's There's more he could have done than just killing everybody. Does that make sense? It does. It does. It's fun to ponder. That's one thing I loved about this movie is it made me think about that. Awesome. Um, Well, any other characters? The only thing I really wanted to mention was, aside from Will and Elizabeth making their brief returns, and aside from Jack and Gibbs and Barbosa being back for the fifth time, we also get Marty back. We also get Scrum back, who was introduced in On Stranger Tides, and he's funny, so I, I liked him being back. And even, again, Malroy and Murtaugh, the, the British officers turned pirates. This film brought back familiar characters that I had missed in On Stranger Tides. And those small connections just made a whole world of difference for me. Ditto. I agree. Well, let's talk about music just a little bit. I originally wasn't going to purchase this soundtrack. I, I just hadn't heard the greatest things about it from film score friends on Twitter, especially. Um, but it's only eight ninety nine on iTunes, and it's an hour and 15 minutes worth of music. So I thought... Hey, I'll I'll jump on that deal. And so I was listening a little bit today and even watching the film, there is an air of familiarity. Zimmer's not back, but Zanelli worked on all four of the previous film scores. So what do you think about the music here? Well, first of all, Chad, I didn't realize it wasn't Zimmer until you told me <laughs> that it wasn't Zimmer. <laughs> so yeah, an air of familiarity is a good way to put it. The theme is so iconic at this point that Many of the tracks on this and much of the soundtrack for the film is kind of just a reworking of the main theme in different sections, whether it's slowed down or sped up or it's more bouncy, it's horns or it's violins, you know, kind of the same thing. So I thought it was Zimmer. I enjoyed it, like I was saying earlier, during the film itself. But oddly enough, I sought this out and I don't normally seek out film soundtracks, um, I have been more and more recently listening to your show actually is what has turned me on to this. And I've realized how great it can be. They're fantastic for taking notes on a film, by the way. Uh, when I was when I was doing some research and, and kind of getting ready for this episode, I had the soundtrack on. And man, it was really an enhancing experience, something I think I'm going to do for my own show. But the ones that stuck out to me, there were a few tracks. One in particular is called um, The Brightest Star in the North. And this is obviously when they are locating that island. And it's just, it's one of the softer tracks on the score. It's got some violins and it just feels more tender. At least the majority of it. It kind of gets a little bit faster at the end. So I really enjoyed that soft nature of that track. It was very, very sweet sounding. And it fit them discovering this island and being mesmerized and enchanted very well. Um, the other one would be the last two tracks on this this film score. One is called Beyond My Beloved Horizon, which is basically just the main theme. It's just that rousing, exciting pirates thing that we know and love. I was joking with my kids because we are going on our first cruise 
uh, in June. My first time on a boat since being on on one for the Navy, by the way. So this will be a very different experience, one where I don't have to work, thankfully. And I told them, I said, hey, are you guys going to mind if I have my phone in my pocket and I uh, fire this theme up as we're walking up the uh, brow of this ship? Because <laughs> I real that's like that's what it makes me feel like. Right. Um, it's exciting and it gets your blood going, it gets you pumping. And it just I, it's the main theme that I have been humming ever since I saw this film. I, I can't stop. I'm just keep on doing it. And then the last one that I really noticed was <laughs> This track is called He's a Pirate, and I wasn't expecting this. So I don't have a history of knowing that they do remixes on different scores for this series. But this track starts, and it feels very much like the main theme. It's very normal. And then all of a sudden, it turns into electronica and this dance techno mix. And I was simultaneously shocked and in love. And I've listened to that like at least a dozen times since discovering it. I, I love it. I love, 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 love it. So I'm a big fan of a few of the tracks. Now, as a whole, this is not a soundtrack that I would personally listen to from top to bottom. Doesn't have that kind of pull on me. But those three tracks stood out. Listening through this score, uh, since I did buy it last night, I listened to it on my drive home tonight. I was more impressed by the standalone score than I expected to be. I, I maintain that Zimmer doesn't sound like he's absent from it because, again, Jeff Zanelli, who's composed the score, worked on the previous four films. His sound is in there with Zimmer's sound in one through four. So, I mean, it wasn't going to sound all that different. And again, the, there are multiple returning themes. You have the He's a Pirate theme. You have the couple of Jack Sparrow themes. There's a cue specifically from Outworld's End that comes back in the latter part of this score. There's lots of familiarity, and I love that. It brings me right back into the universe from the moment I start hearing the music in the film, which is a great thing. Now, there are only a couple of new themes and the most notable one would be Salazar's theme which is like this dirty electric guitar that sort of almost sounds similar to Michael Giacchino's main theme for John Carter if you want to look it up and it's good I like it and I might actually get that stuck in my head specifically but aside from that a lot of the new stuff isn't really memorable it's not bad not at all it's not bad at all but it's not especially fantastic or memorable there's not a whole lot worth talking about now, that being said, aside from Salazar's theme, there's a track called El Matador del Mar, which is basically the track that plays during the flashback scene where we get to see the origin of Jack Sparrow as captain of the Black Pearl, which is awesome. And listening to that track specifically, I was able to picture most of that scene in my head and hear the, the story beats within the song, which I think is awesome. I love when a track can transport me back into the viewing experience, and that one does it for me. And then my other two favorite tracks on the album were Treasure, and My Name is Barbosa, which take place during the climax of the film in the, the trench taking or breaking the um, the trident and all that kind of stuff. And then My Name is Barbosa is basically the aftermath of that leading into the reunion with Will and Henry and Elizabeth. And those tracks specifically, I think it's in, well, I think it might appear in Treasure, but that's when the, the motif I was talking about from At World's End shows back up, which is awesome because it's used to tug on those heartstrings a little bit, and it does that very, very well. So I will probably be revisiting this. It's not going to be my favorite listening experience of the the saga. My favorite one is probably Dead Man's Chest, and Outworld's End is pretty good too. And for that matter, I like one and four's soundtracks a lot too. So 
everything leading up to this has been very, very Zimmer. And I like this one. It's just not as memorable as maybe previous ones were. And that's okay. That's not bad. And it works within the context of the film just fine. So that's my take on the music, at least. Well, if, if people listening are observant here, then they'll note that we did not double up on any tracks. So if you put Chad and I's taste together, you basically are going to like the whole soundtrack. So <laughs> basically eight ninety nine is well worth it for that. I would say, I think so. Uh, eight ninety nine for an hour and 15 minutes worth of music is definitely worth it. In my opinion. Now we've only had a couple of days. We actually were probably watching this movie at the same time. I think, um, across <laughs> our time zones, because I saw that you were watching the movie before I put my phone away to watch my screen and I think as soon as I came out I went onto Twitter to see what you had thought and there it was yeah I think so that's pretty funny but it's only been a couple days we haven't had a whole lot of time to just really sit and dive in deep and we're gonna have to get some reviewings under our belt before we can really tear this film apart as far as themes go and relevance to the world around us but what were your takeaways from this film we've actually talked about practically everything um that i took away from the movie uh, the the barbosa karina relationship was a big one jack young jack and and becoming a captain and and having a reason behind who he was and and what what made him tick what what it was that he actually cared about because <laughs> it doesn't seem like he cares about a lot i mean he does in moments but consistently and looking back and seeing that he does consistently care about having a crew that always that's that's ne- it's a running thread that has never like in rewatching the films. I ne- never noticed that lapse at any moment when the crew was going to leave him. He got flustered. He didn't like that. And so I just loved that moment. It really cemented it for me. Like I said, other than that, there's not a lot. I would have liked more to the Will and Elizabeth ending. If we're talking about what's going forward a little bit, I just I hope that. There's something else for Will and Elizabeth other than a brief running over a hill scene. I mean, I loved it. It was emotional, but I felt a little bit like there should be more to their love story. The idea is strong thematically in this series and in this film of of almost fate, uh, being destiny, being tied to each other, whether it's Henry and Will having a connection as father and son, even though they don't have a relationship because one is underwater and one is not. Whether it's Will and Elizabeth having a relationship, being in love despite being separated. Karina and Barbosa very clearly having a a connection to each other that is just natural for a father and daughter, even though they don't know about each other. Those kind of themes throughout this one were were pretty strong and reinforced for me and i think it's been a running thing throughout the whole series and something that i really enjoy for me what really worked about the will and elizabeth reunion at the end aside from it just being a sort of nostalgia bit was that it showed to me that the love story told in the original trilogy was true and was everlasting this was a real love between them and you know this movie i I did the math takes place 21 years after the conclusion of outworld's end and well that just makes it even more powerful exactly and so they they have been apart for all these years they've presumably only seen each other once maybe twice since that ending when he has taken over the davy jones mantle and here they are like you said having a running over the hill scene just as in love as they were when they last saw each other. And that was what was really powerful about that scene to me. It was, yes, nostalgia is cool, but yes, their relationship and their love for each other is real. 
And that was what really got to me. The father and child relationships, whether it's Barbosa and Karina or Will and Henry, those weren't the the strongest emotional ties for me, but they, they were still pretty powerful. I, I really, I connect personally to father-son relationships or father-daughter relationships or whatever it is in these kind of films. That's what, what always sort of gets me weepy, as I like to say. It makes me weepy. And this film makes me weepy. I, I'm going to rewatch it and I'll probably tear up again. It, it, it's just... I care about these characters and I care about those kind of relationships. And I think that for the most part, they're, they're explored pretty well. There could be a little bit more time spent here or there, a little bit more development here or there, but I, I fully believed in them and I fully appreciated what I got out of them. And then just a couple of smaller points there. There's ideas of the, the dangers of pride and the, the, the love in sacrifice. And aside from that, those are my biggest takeaways. I think. Yeah, that's good stuff. It's interesting that the movie gives us that in the context of like a big blockbuster, right? It doesn't have to. <laughs> There's plenty of big, bigger blockbusters that that don't try to give those things. And I think it's it's a strength that it, it almost doubles down on it via multiple relationships. So pretty much any any of the themes that you're just you're talking about, whether it's pride or whether it's love and sacrifice we see them in multiple character sets throughout this series and not just one. And I think that that's nice because it's reinforced often. Exactly. And it's, it's the parallels between this film and the previous films. And again, that that's just another way I have been attached to this film and to the franchise as a whole. So um, just getting into final thoughts. I was mostly pretty satisfied with this movie i'm already excited to revisit it i'm hope i might try and convince my roommates who haven't seen it yet to go see it again with me uh, or to so i can see it again and they see it the first time that's my excuse at least and i'm looking forward to just enjoying it as an experience you know i re-watching the films this past week and the first four made me realize how much i love this franchise and it's not just because it's cool pirate stuff it's because i care about the characters and this film made me realize how much I care about the characters and I'm excited to revisit this film already. Oh, me too. I almost went and saw it again today. Um, I decided not to, and I wanted to rewatch some of the older ones instead, but I could see myself seeing this a second time in theaters, which I is coming out of nowhere. Um, after initial reviews came in for this, I, I thought for sure, that I was going to be disappointed. So it was nice because it, it did reset my expectations. I didn't watch anything other than the first trailer for this one. The first trailer came out during the Super Bowl in January, and I saw that one. And then after that, I was like, nope, this is one of those films I know I'm going to see, and therefore I don't want to know anything else about going into it. I was excited enough for it. And then my so my expectations were high. Then they came down <laughs> after seeing the reaction. So it was cool because then that got I mean I got to be pleasantly surprised and and so expectations always plays into that. But going forward, I I too am very excited. I love the reset that kind of happens in this one. I like the baseline origin type story for Karina and Henry that we have. I'm very excited to see and interested to see what happens with Will and Elizabeth and the teaser at the end of the film at that post-credits scene with Davy Jones how Davy Jones is going to be brought back into this story. I'm nervous because I want it to be tight <laughs> narratively. I want it to make sense. But if they're going to bring him back and use him as the main 
and only supernatural element to a more humanistic version of a story, I think it could be really, really good. Like I said, I'm awesomely excited to show my kids the rest of the films as well. And this is the first time, Chad, that I have rewatched these movies in maybe a decade. I've been on the ride multiple times. It's like my favorite ride at Disneyland. I I love the ride. And so it's weird that I had never come back to these films. And I think this has reinvigorated my love for pirates. And this could be something that leads me to rewatch these movies much more frequently than I have in the past. Same here. And, you know, regarding that stinger, because every pirates film has a stinger teasing a next film and, This one is no exception. And the Davy Jones appearance has me pretty psyched. And, you know, my dream for a six pirate film would be Gore Verbinski coming back with Terry Rossio and Ted Elliott. Like that, that is the team that made the first three. And I would love for them to come back. And Bill Nye, of course, to come back as Davy Jones, because I don't know if anybody else could play that character the same way we've already seen him. I don't know how they would do it. They'd have to, I mean, we technically didn't see Davy Jones die in at world's end he just fell into the maelstrom but the maelstrom was calypso who loved him so but his heart was stabbed i don't know i don't know how they're gonna do it and i am so curious to see what they do to bring davy jones back and if that team came back with johnny depp returning as a proper jack sparrow the focus being back on will and elizabeth in a way and davy jones being another cool villain coming back i think we could have a really great sixth Pirates of the Caribbean movie. And I am all game, all gung-ho to see it. Or not being a villain. If form holds true with the way that characters have flip-flopped in this series back and forth, I could see him coming back and maybe initially starting off on that revenge track, which is what the the stinger kind of leads you to believe is going on there. But something happening to where... Now it's like Jack and Barbosa teaming up, and now it's now it's Davy Jones as well against some other other threat. But yeah, either way, I love that character, and so I was pumped to see him <laughs> see his shadow. And you know, we expected Will and Elizabeth because of trailers. I think I had no expectation. I had no idea that Davy Jones would make any sort of appearance, and so that was like really big wow moment of the movie for me. And it's at the very end after the credits. And I had a momentary like heart stoppage too for about maybe five seconds, ten seconds, because it looks like he's going to kill Will in his sleep, and I was like, I swear, movie. If you just gave me Will and Elizabeth back together and then you kill them in this post credit scene, I am going to lose my mind. And so thankfully that didn't happen. Yes. And the greatest part about it for me was was you see them sleeping and I was pretty sure it was Will and Elizabeth, but I wasn't positive. There was something about the way they were laying that I didn't recognize them very well. But then you start hearing the footsteps and I thought, oh, no, it's Davy Jones. Like I, I had that thought, but it, it, it was just like. Again, like you said, heart stopping was, oh, snap, Davy Jones is here somehow. So it, it was a really, gr- it's probably my favorite stinger, honestly, of any of the film, except for maybe Barbosa's return at the end of Dead Man's Chest. That one was pretty good, too. But uh, that I don't know that. Yeah, I think that one probably tops it simply because you're just like you're expecting him to be dead. And, and then it's, he walks down the stairs and every the characters' reactions sell it because they're just like, what? <laughs> oh, I have to give a quick fun fact about that. The cast didn't know that Barbosa was coming back. And so their reactions 
are for real. Oh, like, that's Jeffrey amazing. Rush walking down the stairs was their first time knowing that he was going to be in it. Oh, that's oh, that is awesome. Isn't that awesome? That is so cool. Yes. Anyways, I think we're we're well past an hour into this bonus <laughs> episode, so I think it is time to call that the end of the seventh bonus episode of Cinescope. Thank you, Aaron, for being available sort of last minute to throw this together and talk about this movie that is getting a lot of hate, but apparently we like it, and I'm excited that we got to talk about it together. Yeah, my pleasure. It was a great, great time. Contact for the show, facebook.com slash podcast and at CinescopePod on Twitter. Remember to rate and review on iTunes, especially if you want to be entered into the giveaway that is happening at episode 52. You still have some time, so make sure you do that. If you have feedback or ideas, you can email me at thecinescopepodcast at gmail.com. And if you're interested in co-hosting, if you have a movie that you'd love to talk about, let me know and we'll get you on the show. Now, Aaron, where can people find you, find Feel on Film, all that kind of stuff online? Well, if you would like to connect with me personally, you can find me at Aaron L. White, A-A-R-O-N-E-L-W-H-I-T-E on Twitter. Um, you can type that into Facebook. You'll get my Facebook. Uh, or you can look up Feelin' Film as well on Twitter and Facebook. It's F-E-E-L-I-N-F-I-L-M. We have a pretty active Facebook discussion group that Chad is a very big part of and is always there talking away as well. So you could come there and uh, communicate with him and, and chime in. There's always being movies talked about pretty much all day long now throughout the day. Yeah, we're, up much. To, we're closing in on about 250 members. And so it's it's becoming self-sufficient and, uh, and content's being generated all the time. It's a good good time. So yeah, I'd love to have you check out uh, Feelin' Film. We're on iTunes as well. And everywhere you can find Cinescope, you can find Feelin' Film. Definitely. And I can't reiterate enough how awesome Feel and Film is. It's similar in concept to this show. We talk about films positively and Feel and Film talks about uh, films from an emotional standpoint. And th those go hand in hand a lot of times. So I've, I've loved Feel and Film since before I started Cinescope. And after I started Cinescope and we've both appeared on each other's shows now. And so uh, definitely go give Feel and Film some love. Now, the best place to find me is on Twitter at Chadadada, that is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A, and on Facebook.com slash Chad.Hopkins. And all the, the weird spellings for the contact information and the show notes themselves can be found at thecinescopepodcast.com. And that's all for this week, or that's all for this episode. <laughs> thank you, Aaron. Having you on the show has been amazing. And thank you, everyone, for listening to our seventh bonus episode I'm Chad Hopkins, this was Cinescope, and we'll be back later this week with episode 44. Have fun and celebrate movies. Mm -hmm.